A lot of you would know that um, I, I used to live in New Zealand. I talk about it all the time. It was a really formative time in my life. Uh, I think about it a lot this time of year because uh, in the autumns there, I would go every uh, morning and I would sit on the ocean at this beach called Rabbit Island. Um, It was about 10 minutes away from my house. That is a picture of Rabbit Island. Uh, The water there is actually that color. It's aqua blue. When people see that picture or pictures like it of the region where I lived in New Zealand, they say, why did did you move back here? And sometimes I think the same thing. but the, the, the beach there, I'd sit along the beach. The beach there, I'll give you a picture of the beach. It, it looks like that. And, and uh, it is one of the safest swimming beaches in the world. It's very, uh, there's no undertow. It's very gradual as it goes out. Um, I used to sit in my car right along that beach and sometimes walk. You would find on that beach about as many people as you can see in that photo. Uh, 11 kilometers long, that beach. And it's like that. It's It's magnificent. Nelson, where I lived, had 310, 320 days of sunshine a year. So when you go to the beach, you go to the beach. It's like it's a legit experience. I used to talk to people when I got there. I could not believe that there was nobody at Rabbit Island. So I used to tell people there, have you been to Rabbit Island? And they'd be like, yeah. Are you not like amazed at how great Rabbit Island is? Eh, it's okay. What do you mean it's okay? 11 kilometers long of white sandy beach? Do you know what it's like to live in rain for seven months of the year? You come down, it's amazing. Rabbit Island. Ah, they weren't to that. It's okay. Sometimes you can be so near a thing that it loses its luster. It just becomes common. We're like that sometimes with the stuff around here. People come from outside of our area. Look at the trees. You're like, eh. Oh, the leaves get in my yard and I have to rake them. It's so hard. <laughs> have you seen that mountain over there? How big is that mountain? I don't know. It's, it's okay. Mount Baker. I mean, it's in the U.S., so it's not as good as... <laughs> it's just common, right? We, we see it all the time. You don't, we don't know the masterpiece that's in front of us. Came across, I actually came across a story this week. That I want to read to you. Um, one day, an employee at a tool company in Indiana spent $30 for a few pieces of used furniture and an old painting of some flowers. When he got his new stuff home, he decided to strategically hang the picture to cover up a hole in the wall that had been bugging him. And some years later, he was playing a board game called Masterpiece, in which the players attempt to outbid one another for artwork at an auction. Much to his surprise, one of the cards in the game featured a painting of flowers that looked a lot like the one he had on his wall. So he went online, and he found that his painting was similar in style to the work of Martin Johnson Heed, an American still-life artist best known for landscapes and flower arrangements. Through his research, he found the Kennedy Galleries in Manhattan, which handles many of Heed's works. And he asked them to have a look at his painting. They agreed. And they were able to verify that the piece of artwork covering the hole in his wall was a previously unknown heed painting since named Magnolias on Velvet Gold Cloth. And in 1999, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston purchased the painting for $1.25 million. 
Can you, when I read that, like, can you imagine the person who sold this at garage sale? Ah, let's get rid of the pain. that painting. I hate that painting. It's sitting by the dog food in the garage all those years. What if we package it together with those ugly couches? 30 bucks. Sometimes you just don't know what you've got, right? Something in front of you, something magnificent, something familiar. Though, familiarity doesn't always breed contempt, but it certainly does breed indifference. We yawn at the things we're used to. You know that's, that's the case with the faith, though, as well. Um, you can be around the things of God so much that they just become kind of normal to you. You can be near God and experience the life of faith with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and it just becomes sort of, eh, it's okay. I mean, is there anything more magnificent in the universe than the triune God? I mean, by definition, isn't he the greatest thing? So therefore, the time that you spend investing in the things pertaining to him is the best time you could possibly spend. So you go to church and you, you read the scriptures and you pray and you spend time among God's people. But after a while, it's just sort of like the, the flower arrangement on that picture near the dog food. It's just sort of there. Man, we all know stories of people, you know, whose parents took them to church at every available opportunity, and they did the family devotions, and they did the little singing together, and they had their little Von Trapp singing family and went around so near the things of God, and then we find out that one of the kids later on just abandons it all because, you know, who cares? You know, it's cool, vaping. But this Christian stuff, eh. See, I call that unexpected unbelief. It's unexpected because you'd think that being so near to something so magnificent like God would foster a kind of desire to know him and a love for him that would last all your days. But sometimes unbelief is unexpected. It's among the people who are closest to the things. This passage in Romans chapter 9, is about unexpected unbelief. Now, i got to tell you something. We're starting our sermon series again in the book of Romans. We're doing it for, the, for the, the autumns of the last number of years. We have reached the point in the book of Romans where it is perhaps the most hotly contested verses in the Bible. So if you want some controversy, you should come back next week. I'll be talking about theology for the next two weeks, and you can bring your weapons to that. But today, I want to speak to you more pastorally than theologically. I want to deal with this short passage, Romans 9, 1 to 5, where Paul describes his feelings about the fact that so many of the Jewish brothers and sisters that he has who should believe in Jesus because he's their Messiah and they've been closest to God as a nation through all these ages, they should believe, and yet so few do. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that so many people who we know, loved ones, we care so dearly about, even though they've been around the things of God and we've shared them with them their whole lives, they just don't buy it. So here's what we're going to learn here. Uh, number one, 
we, we need to realize that this unexpected unbelief happens. Second, we, we need to admit it hurts. And then third, we need to recognize it's not hopeless. Right? So it happens, it hurts, it's not hopeless. Here's the first of those. Um, it happens, unexpected unbelief. So here's verses 1 to 5 of Romans 9, the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, look, here's, here's the problem that he's dealing with here. The Apostle Paul was a church planter. That's what, he, that's what he did. He was sent out from one church to go into regions where there were no churches, where people hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus, to preach the gospel to them, and then to gather them together in a church. After that happened, he would go to the next town, and he'd do the same thing. When he went to these towns, he had a specific order that he followed, he said to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And so when he'd go to a new town, right, shows up in Abbotsford, he looks for the Jewish population of that town, if there are any. And sometimes there was. They had a synagogue in the town. Or sometimes if they didn't have a synagogue, there were women, who, Jewish women, who would meet by the, the, by the river, and he would go down and he would preach the gospel to them. But wherever the Jews were, he'd go to them first. Assuming, of course, that because for all these years they've been near to God and God is, they have been God's special possession and all their history has been leading up to this Messiah, this Jesus, that when Paul says, hey, this Jesus is yours, they will freely and quickly embrace him. The problem is that when he went and he preached to these people, they didn't embrace Jesus. They, they turned aside their own Messiah. And so then Paul would go out and he'd end up sharing it with the Gentiles. And he was finding among the Gentiles a greater harvest. More of them were coming. And this doesn't make sense to him. Like, how is it that these people who were so near to God, the Jews, so near to him, who should be expected to believe when they see their Messiah, are rejecting him? And he goes into detail to talk about like the, the spiritual benefits that they have. Just, th just think about. Think about the language he uses. He says that you, they, they are adopted as sons. It's like God goes into the orphanage of the world and he gets to select a child for his own possession, for his, to be his own, you know, the one who is in the inheritor of all of his things. So he goes into this orphanage and he sees all of them and he selects out one. He selects out Israel from all the nations. They're, they're adopted as, as sons. They, they saw the divine glory. When Israel was being led out of Egypt, uh, they, got, they saw the glory of God because in front of them, what was leading them during the day was a cloud, a great cloud, and then at night was a pillar of fire. If you wanted to see the glory of God in the evening, you would walk out with your friends and say, there it is. 
Yahweh didn't do that for all the other nations. He didn't call them his adopted children. He did it for Israel. They were his own, his special people. He made a covenant. See that line there? There's the covenants. He didn't, God chose Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. He doesn't do that with the Babylonians. He doesn't do that with the Assyrians. He does it with Abraham. The temple is in their midst. God dwells with them. Of all the people on the planet who should have loved Jesus, these are them. And yet they don't. <laughs> They're near the things of God, but they rejected the one to whom all of those things pointed. And even when Jesus is, when Jesus is wandering around the Palestinian lands, uh, landscape of those days, right? He, inter he interacts a bit with this problem. Okay, so they, the Jews should be receiving him warmly, but they're not. So he, there's a story told in, um, in the book of Matthew where there's a centurion. He's a Gentile. Centurion is a, is a military man. He's like a battalion leader. And this military man comes up to Jesus. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. Jesus has been preaching to the Jewish people. They've been rejecting him. This Gentile comes up and he says to Jesus, listen, I got a servant who's ill. You need, can you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, take, take me to him. And the, and the centurion says, listen, I don't need, I don't need you to come. Because I know how it works. I'm, I'm a man with authority. And when I say a word, I've got minions who carry out my, my words. Like being the pastor of Northview, right? They, they go out, they do what I, my bidding. So all you need to do, Jesus, is just say the word, and I know that the demons of hell will run away from you. So you just say the word. And Jesus responds to this guy by saying, okay, so here's the thing. Everybody, I have not found this kind of faith in Israel. Like, if you want a model for how it is you're supposed to respond to me and the authority I have because I am the second member of the Trinity, this guy gets it. So he's receiving me and responding to me rightly, but the, the Jews who should get this, they don't respond to me rightly. At the end, Matthew 8, 11, he says, I say to you, Many will come from the east and the west. I mean, people like this Gentile centurion. Many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the Jewish people, God's own domain, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, here's my point. Okay, it's a very simple point. The nearness to the things of God does not guarantee love for God. The nearness to the things of God does not guarantee love for God. There, there is such a thing as unexpected unbelief. In John chapter 6, Jesus, there's this really interesting story that goes on. So Jesus it, uh, feeds the 5,000. Do you remember this story? That number, 5,000, is probably a reference to the number of men there. They didn't count women and children in those days. And so it's probably numbers that were like 15 to 20,000, most scholars believe. So lots and lots of people needing to be fed on the seashore. The disciples say, hey, we send them away so they can go get something to eat in the nearby towns. And Jesus is like, nah, you guys feed them. The disciples are like, what? You don't have anything. I mean, we've got this kid over here, and he's got five loaves and two fish. But, I mean, that's enough for Peter. 
Well, the rest of us aren't going to eat that. Jesus is like, oh, well, give it to me. Praise, blesses it. Okay, start handing it out. Can you imagine being the people who hand this thing out, right? They're just handing it out. Here's yours, here's yours, here's And you're thinking it's going to run out, but every time you look down in your little basket, there's more, and there's more, and there's more. After like a few, what, hundred, you're like, this is fun, right? And you're passing out the fish, right? But you're fish for everybody. 15,000 people fed. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that? You'd be like, whoa, this guy can feed 15,000 people with just a little bit. I'm in. Wherever he goes, I'm with this guy. What a miracle. Okay, so a few verses later, Jesus starts saying, hey, you guys remember the, the loaves and fish? Remember the eating and the... If you want to be my disciple, he says to all these people who are now following him, if you want to truly be my disciple, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, ooh, I don't like that. Uh, could you perhaps soften that a little bit, Jesus? And he's like, no, I won't. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Do you not like that? No, we don't like it at all. Well, what are you going to do? We're going to leave. And they do. John 6, 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples, the people who saw the feeding of the 5,000, the people who experienced the miracle, that didn't guarantee that they stuck around. So that's a personal thing for me. The idea that somebody could be near to the faith and walk away. So I'm a Christian today because my sister uh, got involved with a Christian camp. I don't know why she got involved with a Christian camp. It was kind of in our area. I don't know how she heard about it. But she did. She became a camp counselor at this Christian camp in our area. I told my mom that summer, hey, uh, it would be really great if Jeff and Megan, her two younger siblings, came to camp for the week. It, they'll have fun. I mean, it's a Christian camp. My mom was thinking, yeah, a Christian camp, camp. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Like, they become a pastor or something? <laughs> so we went. I heard them talk about the Bible stories. I went to a church. They talked about the Bible, not the way that those other people did. They talked about Jesus as he was a, a person you could know. He talked about, they talked about Jesus as one who stood in my place for my sin. The one who wanted to make me right for, with God. That's not what I heard at my church. My church was like, hey, Jesus is a good guy. Follow the way he does stuff, and your life might go well. Here's hoping. But these guys were talking about, no, no, Jesus, you can't do it. Jesus did it, and he wants to be the one who can do it in you. I'm like, uh. So he died for me. I, I remember where I was sitting. It was a green shag carpet. I remember I was sitting in this big auditorium, and the guy was sharing about the, the death and resurrection of Christ. And he said, does anybody want to believe? My hand was up. Yes, me. I'm in. Thanks to my sister. Well, a few years later, uh, she went off to college. I remember when I was sitting and at the Red Robin in Seattle. When she came back from college, my, she was my hero follower of Jesus, want to be like her. She came back from college 
And she started saying stuff at that dinner that, that didn't sound very Christian. The way she was living at the time and everything, just everything had changed. The person that I knew that left our house had come back and she was completely different. And today, if I speak to her and I have, uh, she, she just thinks that her time as a Christian was just a bad burrito. You can probably add your own story of those you know who've left it behind. Just because you're around the church and involved in things. My sister was involved in leading kids to Christ in camp. Just because you're around that doesn't mean it guarantees your future with it. Right? I tell this to like people in my theology classes that meet at 6 o'clock on Thursday mornings. I tell this to students who come out in the evening to learn about Jesus. Just because you're showing up at the event, just because you got up early to learn theology does not mean that five years from now you're still with it. Unexpected unbelief happens. When it happens, listen now, when it happens, it hurts. When you see your sister, your brother, your kids, your family, your friends, it just kills you. Killed Paul. You see the same verses again, okay? So it, it happens. Secondly, it, it hurts. Um, I want to just read the verses again. I just want you to listen to his language here. It's very emotive. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, for I could wish, I mean, if it were possible that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ... For the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. If it were possible to switch places, I would. Save them. Damn me. Those words there, uh, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That word sorrow is the word that we use for, for grief. It's a, a word that's used in lots of different contexts in the scriptures, but mostly about broken relationships you know, like she doesn't love you anymore. He doesn't care about you anymore. Or about the death of a loved one. It's the thing that goes on inside of you when those events happen. And so you've got, I mean, you've got to connect with the, the feelings that Paul is describing here. Most of you don't know that when I was dating my, uh, my now wife, there was a period where she abandoned me. She, she broke up with me. I actually, I was in Austria at the time. Uh, I had gone to a Bible college in Austria, and uh, I was there. We had been dating maybe five, four or five months, and I was traveling around Austria with some friends, and uh, I was calling back home. I remember my father, after I got home later, said, you spent $700 on, on which I've never paid back. Uh, <laughs> but I was calling back, you know. I remember where I was. It was in Obertraun, Austria. I was at a hot youth hostel there. I went down to the phone. I called her on the phone. Hey, Jeannie, how's it going? I miss you. Guys, you know how it's like when, the, when she's not really into you anymore? You remember, some of those of you who've, who've struggled with this, you say, I miss you. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> oh. You're welcome. I don't know. <laughs> 
Jeff, I don't know if this is going to work. What do you mean? Listen, us, and I've just been thinking a lot, and it's been hard, and I just don't know. And I just need some space. Those are exact words. I said to her, after a long pause, uh, I'm in Austria. <laughs> All you have is space. Right? No, we're done. I just, no, I can't do it anymore. Click. Oh. It was an Easter Sunday. And I remember, I, wicked woman. I, I, I remember um, being devastated that day. You know, and with these friends, and we're traveling, seeing these cathedrals and beautiful, you know, it's Easter, and so they're having festivals. All the, So you have these short moments in the middle of the day where you kind of forget about what happened, but something that you see brings your mind back to what had happened, and you just those emotions flood again, and you're just, you're crushed again. You're ruined. Tears are always at the ready. My, listen, when my mother died, I was on the ground, Literally. There were points at which I couldn't get up. I used to go down on Thursdays and see my father, who'd lost his wife of 49 years. I used to go see his, my father, and I'd do some study in the morning, and he would be in the hallway cleaning out a closet, and he'd come across one of her shoes. And he'd just die right there. That's what, he's, that's what Paul's talking about, that kind of emotion. You want to know what it feels like, he says? That kind of sorrow. And what's interesting about what he says here is that, listen, when your loved one dies, there, there is a, an intense moment of grief. And then after a while, you don't get over it, but there is a smile that comes just before the tears. So it starts to fade. For Paul, though, he says, no, this anguish, it's unceasing. It's like a low murmur in my life. It just, it's always there. I just, want my, I just want my family to know Jesus. You know what that's like? It's right to feel this way about our friends and family. It, it's right for us to say things like, for I wish I could, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. It's right. That is right for us to say. It's the right for us to feel that way. Unexpected unbelief happens, and when it happens, it hurts. But look, it's not hopeless. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you at the end here, I want to give you three pastoral encouragements, if you can identify with anything that I've said here. I, I get these pastoral encouragements from the wider context of Romans, okay? They're, they're truths that come out of much of what Paul teaches in the book of Romans about God and what he's like, Okay? So here they are, three pastoral encouragements for those who suffer with unexpected unbelief in their lives or the lives of their family. Here we go. Number one, uh, you need to remember that God keeps those who are his. 
Like God keeps those who are his. If you go back immediately preceding Romans 9, verse 1, the two verses immediately preceding it are Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, which, which say, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if you are God's and he has his attention on you, you will not get away. You might wander at points, just like the one sheep who goes off, but he will find you and he will bring you home. That's what he's like. He's never chasing God that way. I don't want to leave you thinking that my, my wife, my girlfriend left me and never came back. I have children with her now. Um, <laughs> when I got back from Austria, I got off the, I got off the plane and, and she was there. I didn't know she was going to be there. I remember what she was wearing. It was funny. I came off the plane and my family was there. Yay! They actually had noisemakers. You know, yay, welcome home. I was like, yeah, but so you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we spent the next four or five days together, you know, just uh, hanging out and stuff. And I realized once again, of course, why there's no way that I'm letting this one go. Like it just made me like, okay, that's it. I'm redoubling my efforts here. You know, no matter what happens here, Unless she just like cast me aside in the most vicious way, I am after this woman. So I worked at a camp all that summer, and my my uh, my camp was located on the islands just off of this Seattle, and she lived in eastern Washington State, about a six hour drive away. I, I drove that every weekend for nine straight weeks. And when I say weekend, you need to understand it's not actually when you work at a Christian camp. What happens is that you get done at noon on Saturday and you start at noon on Sunday. So I would leave at noon. You know, the last camper would be my cabin. Okay, see ya. You know, and I'd run to the car, get in the car, six hours later across the state, show up for basically dinner, have dinner with this dear woman, and then I would talk to her and then I would go to sleep, wake up the next morning and drive back. Nine weeks in a row. Kept coming, man. That, listen, that winter, I've shared this before, that winter, that snowstorm, right? There's a wedding on the other side. It's not my wedding, but somebody else's. Snowstorm, I'm driving through the snowstorm. No snow's gonna stop me. I get there, burst open the doors. She's sitting there. The bride is sitting there. They think it's the groom walking through. No, it's no groom. It's Jeff, right? Boom! <laughs> Right, walks through those doors, and everyone's like, oh, it's Jeff. And Jeannie's like, oh, it's Jeff. That's right. <laughs> right, you just keep coming. Right? That, that's what it looks like to be an ever-chasing boy. You, you know, listen, you know that God is like that, right? That's the way that he's described when he makes a covenant with someone. When he, when he tags them, he says, listen, you will be mine. You run all you want. So look, the people in our lives who don't follow Christ right now, I, you, you got to remember that they might be wandering at the moment, but God keeps those who are his. 
And because God keeps those who are his, here's the second pastoral encouragement. Don't get stuck in a moment. Don't get stuck in a moment. By that I mean, I mean don't take a snapshot of their life in this moment and think that that is indicative of everything that will be. So um, when I first started preaching in this church, it occurred to me very quickly that I was an acquired taste and that there were some people who didn't want to acquire that taste. And I remember this one guy, he was actually sitting in this room. He was sitting, looking over here, and he was sitting with this woman. And uh, he had his arms crossed during the sermon. And I started noticing getting him getting very agitated and he and his, the girl talking back and forth an awful lot. Now the sermon admittedly, was on, this, on David and Bathsheba, okay, and which was a sermon about sexual sin. David sins uh, by, by basically raping Bathsheba and uh, ends up killing her husband to cover it up. So I was applying this to sexual sin and the cover-up that takes place and how we need to repent, just like David ultimately did. Anyway, this guy, about halfway through the sermon, just stands up, the girl next to him stands up. She walks quickly out the door. She goes out the door, and he goes to the door, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he's got his arms folded, and he says this. And I was like, oh, so see you later. <laughs> you know, got an email. A couple days later, I was the guy at the door. I did not, I was not happy with you sharing my story in front of everyone. I said, what? Apparently this is not his wife. This is his girlfriend that he just started to see recently and he's cheating on his wife with her and came to church. And the pastor just happened to be preaching on David and Bathsheba and he thought that was a story about him. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I am so sorry. But if the shoe fits. <laughs> okay, fast forward a number of years. So there's a guy sitting on an aisle now, and he's smiling at me and nodding a lot, right? Most of the time, people just sleep, right? But this guy's smiling and nodding, and he's looking right at me, and I'm like, oh, how's it going, man? Yeah, good to see you. <laughs> Get an email a couple days later. Hey, I was a guy smiling and nodding. You might, you might remember me, because the last time you saw me, I was the guy shaking my head at the door. <laughs> and he said, you know, um, I was at church with my wife. Said, I'm just so sorry. I just acted like a crazy man for a bit there. So here's the thing, man. If you took a snapshot of him at the door and said, yep, that's the future for this guy. Consign him to hell. You would be so short-sighted and you would be underestimating the power of God in the most extreme sense. I mean, this is the kind of God who saves guys like the Apostle Paul, who is a murderous Cretan, he was trying to kill all the Christians until God knocked him on his backside on the road to Damascus. If you took a picture of Paul and said, yep, see that guy? He will never repent. You've been so wrong. God is in the business of changing people. You might not be there for the person who's unexpectedly unbelieving in your life. You might not be able to convince them with all your arguments and your, and your thoughts about all these things, but God is there and he is on the move. Keep those who are his. So don't get stuck in a moment. He 
keeps those who are his. Don't get stuck in a moment. And so what do you do then? Well, you keep praying. So there's this lovely little story in the book of Acts. Chapter 16. Paul goes to, to a new community, Philippi. There's no Christians there. So he looks for a synagogue, no synagogue. He shows up at the, at the river and he speaks to these women, these Jewish women at the river. One of those women's name is Lydia, Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, rich. She was a worshiper of God. That means that she wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile who was what they called God, a God-fearer. She was just on the, on the outskirts of the community, interested in the God of Israel. The Lord, listen to the way it's written, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You know that's how people get saved, right? It's not because you're amazingly clever. It's not because you said it in the right way. It's because the Lord reaches in and he opens the heart. He unlocks the heart in his sovereign power, unlocks the heart so that they can believe. Here's the thing. You're not able to do that. God is able to do that. So what should you and I be doing? Appealing to the one who has the ability to do it. Yes, but I've been praying for my friend for so long. Keep going, man. It might very well be that God is going to vindicate your prayers after a length of time that you never expected. One of the greatest stories, I'll finish with this, one of the greatest stories um, that I've ever heard about that comes from a professor of mine, Howard Hendricks, who passed away a few years ago. He shared the story in classes and other places that I had with him uh, about how his father came to faith in Christ. I'll, I'll, I'll read it the way he wrote it. He said, the phone rang, and I greeted a young pastor friend from Arlington, Virginia. What are you doing, he asked. Well, I'm studying, I replied. I'm not doing anything special. Are you sitting down? Yeah. Why? Well, your father just trusted Christ this evening. He what? You gotta be kidding me, I replied. Now, such an inappropriate response grew out of long detours in our father-son journey. Ever since I received Christ as a boy, my, my concern has been for the salvation of my family and loved ones. On repeated occasions, I had broached the subject of the gospel with dad, but, but his response was less than excited. My father's always been a very important person to me, not that I approved of everything he said or did or that I imitated him consciously in any way. We weren't really close friends either, but he was important in my life because of the direct, indirect impact he had made upon me. See, he was a military man, my dad. He had seen action around the world, and during the period, see, when he was embroiled in battle, I would become very sensitive to his spiritual need. I prayed for him. But at times, I'm afraid my faith sputtered. His response was always the same. Son, don't worry about me. I'll work it out with God. As if God could be manipulated by like a Pentagon official. Over the years, God brought into my life um, a friend. His name was Butch Hardman. One day before we knew each other, Butch was boarding a plane in Detroit when a friend handed him a cassette tape. Remember those? Ever hear Hendrix? Here's a tape you should listen to, he said. 
On that tape, I related my father's spiritual need. Butch listened, and something about the anecdote reminded him of his own father with whom he had shared Christ shortly before he died. So Butch began to pray for this unknown man, George Hendricks. Some months later, Butch attended a pastor's conference in Philadelphia where I was the speaker. He shook my hand afterward. That was the only time our paths crossed before a remarkable incident happened in Arlington. You see, Butch was driving the church bus down the street, having discharged all his passengers. He saw a man standing on the corner who reminded him uncannily of Howard Hendricks. Could it be? So he backed up the bus, stopped, got off, and went over to the man. Are you, are you by any chance Howard Hendricks' father? It's easy to imagine the startled response from my dad. I can envision my father's critical once over with his steely blue eyes. Yeah? You a student of my son's? No, I'm not. But he sure has helped me. Got time for a cup of coffee? Well, that encounter began a relationship, a friendship skillfully engineered by the Spirit of God. Butch undoubtedly sensed Dad's hesitancy when he discovered he had met a preacher. For a long time, Butch didn't invite him to attend his church. He simply suggested that Dad drop by the office for coffee. Patiently, he endured Dad's cigars and his endless repertoire of war stories. And before long, he'd also learned that Dad had been diagnosed as having terminal throat cancer. So months later, Butch was at his bedside. Mr. Hendricks, I'll be leaving shortly for a Holy Land trip. So, so instead of my listening to you tonight, would you let me tell you a story? Bush had earned his hearing, and he began simply to relate the interview of Jesus Christ with Nicodemus, as recorded by the Apostle John. And at the conclusion, Dad accepted Bush's invitation to receive Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. And then my dad got up out of bed, stood and saluted with a smile. Now I'm under a new commander-in-chief. And it was that night that my friend Butch called me in Dallas. Last time I saw my dad alive, I couldn't believe he was the same man I'd known. His frame was wasted, but his spirit was more alive than I'd ever known. In accordance with dad's specific provision in his will, Butch Hardman conducted the crisp military funeral in Arlington Cemetery, where the gospel of Jesus Christ was presented to the small group of family and military attendants. And as the guns saluted their final farewell, I knew God had vindicated 42 years of my prayer. Unbelief may be unexpected at times, but man, you've got to know that God is on the move in ways that you can't even imagine. You've got to know that he's able to keep his own. He's, he's like that, our God. He's, he's an unrelenting, ever-seeking, ever-chasing God.